This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, for our news roundup episode, we talk about Trump's executive orders, the airport protests, the rising power and delusions of the alt right, Steve Bannon and the left's increasingly militant tactics against Milo and Gavin McInnes. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. I post his Jurassic Marks on the website. Uh, Joining me tonight is Donald. Hey, this is Donald Parkinson from the Communist League of Tampa. Uh, Lexi. Hey, this is Lexi from Red Party and the Illuminati San Francisco chapter. <laughs> uh, and Patrick. Um, resident judo Bolshevik from the Red Party. Hey. All right. So it's been a pretty crazy fucking week. Um, Trump is finally in power and it is as maddening and insane to watch as I think we all expected uh, anyone hoping for the whole all the whole bluster and so forth of his campaign to just be another Obama phenomenon where it's just a gateway to mild reformism you know maybe he'd sit around and watch TV and tweet well Mike Pence ran a conservative administration uh, that's out the window uh, he's got Breitbart telling him what to do and he's basically realigning America's entire geo strategy globally um, so we've all watched it uh, with some degree of shock and a growing sense of helplessness. Um, so uh, to feed into that, to maybe talk about it a little bit, I thought I'd start just by going through a list of some of the uh, executive orders that I can get your uh, hot takes on the executive orders. Oh, good. That sounds therapeutic. I'll get my bomb running. <laughs> uh, okay. So the first, to ease into it, the first few are uh, some of the more mild ones. Uh, I just ripped this off some website. Uh, one was an order uh, instructing agencies that whenever they introduce a regulation, they must first abolish two others, which is one of those things that who the fuck knows how that's actually going to work out bureaucratically or what impact that's going to have. Um, but it's one of those things that definitely sounds good on a, as like a talking point on a conservative website. So you can probably bet Bannon was behind that somehow. Um, Next is an order to restructure the National Security Council and the Homeland Security Council, uh, which sounds ominous, but uh, the next one is actually mildly reformist, uh, an order to lengthen the ban uh, on administration officials working as lobbyists. Now there's a five-year ban on officials becoming lobbyists after they leave the government, and a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. Cracking down on corruption. Yeah, he's draining the swamp. So here's the famous one. an executive order imposing 120-day suspension on the refugee program and a 90-day travel ban to the U.S. from citizens of seven terror hotspots, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, and Sudan. And uh, one thing that jumps out to me, you know, apart from the obvious, you know, Islamophobia and racism and insanity of the whole thing is uh, Saudi Arabia isn't on there. And... If I recall correctly, most of the 9-11 hijackers were Saudi. Uh, so really, if this was implemented you know, in 2001, it wouldn't have even stopped 9-11. Uh, but what are your thoughts on this uh, 
this travel ban. Anyone want to jump in? Well, the thing with basically all of Trump's executive orders right now is that they're not going through like the correct bureaucratic process of like correcting and that sort of thing. So they're just being thrown out there without any kind of like checks, anyone checking if they're legal or not. And it's just baffling most of the people like involved in it. Like the TSA does not how, know how to enforce this sort of thing like so quickly. And it, it's it's really showing. It's really showing. I well, think the TSA doesn't know how to do their job anyway, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it fair point, fair point. But basically, I think this is sort of like a part of like some kind of strategy on the part of like Bannon or maybe the administration to like wear out the activist left, the most controversial stuff out first to like get them all worked up, and eventually like maybe even be able to like actually work on it later on when like the attention and all the anger has died down. Hmm. When I was first encountering these executive orders, I definitely got the feeling funnily enough that I was looking at three dimensional chess. Like I was like, Oh man, he must've really thought about all these things in advance. And the Democrats must be really thinking about these moves in advance and you know, how to, have been doing legal projections of what might happen if Trump tried to implement X and Y. Over the course of the last few days, though, I've been really getting the sense that, no, some dude from a conservative news site is just very influential in the White House right now. And they're just like throwing shit out there and probably having a laugh with each other. And the entire government is like, nope, nope, no, you can't do that. <laughs> well, there, there were literally members of the executive branch that didn't know they were doing this. Like it was the whole thing was drafted in like a high level of secrecy. But one one tool that Trump has at his disposal is apparently over time, especially under Obama, the section of the executive that determines what they can get away with legally and or not has grown significantly. So they have an army of lawyers who are able to it's true. Find, find ways to get through these things and, you know, implement as we're seeing like the most crazy heinous stuff. And they have, you know, a, they can build a decent legal case for it. And from what I've read, you know, this thing is going to be tied up in court for a year. Uh, and maybe it gets made by the time it gets to the Supreme court and the parts of it that they challenge legally get shut down. Trump could have already basically restructured the entire immigration process, thus making the legal challenges to it moot. So, it's there's and getting this out quickly. They're def, I think there actually is a, a method to the madness. Um, not, yeah, not, even not even touching this stuff on the activist left. I mean, yeah, I would say there's a method to the madness. And my theory is basically that Trump, Bannon, Giuliani, that whole you know grouping are basically trying to see how much they can get away with <clears throat> at this yeah. point, finding the weak spots in the law that prevent them from getting away uh, would prevent them from doing what they want to do and they're figuring out how to bypass those and so they're basically doing that and i also think there might be some truth to the patrick's idea that you know they're, they're trying to wear out opposition and they're trying to play a strategy of attrition where you know people just get burned out and can't even it just doesn't it isn't possible for spontaneous activism to you know hold back this kind of stuff that they want to do because it's just too much well and it's the the whole you know the first 100 days of the presidency is always a very common uh, trope a uh, few of them are 
bold enough, we can say to perhaps to move at the level that Trump has. Uh, but then again, you know, there's never been this much power concentrated in the executive. And even when the Democrats, you know, had a with clear but filibuster proof majority under Obama, I don't know if, if they had necessarily the same sense of uh, political cohesion that the Republican Party does, oh, despite no. the fact that they're opposed to Trump. Not, Not at all. I, that's the thing. When we talk about political agency and structure, I think the left has a very warped idea of, of how these things can actually work because we observe the Democrats who can capture the presidency with a strong electoral mandate, get a supermajority in Senate, and capture the House, and still fail to get through a Heritage Foundation health care plan, like, you know, with a public option intact. Like, that's what, you know, we think of as, oh, there's structural restraints. When you look at what the right wing does with the executive power, the logic of the executive branch as it's been expanding, uh, it's really been expanding since um, universal um, suffrage for men, uh, certainly. Um, the logic of that is that the executive does what it needs to do and then can retroactively get it legalized, uh, more or less. And what I also think is happening is that Trump is trying to find dissent in his ranks. Like, for instance, acting attorney general um, Sally Yates uh, or deputy attorney general. I'm not sure what her rank was, but the point is you fired, you know, like Trump issued an executive order. She refused to carry it out. He purges her, makes an example of her. I think there's a sort of there is a sort of Machiavellian logic to this. And there's even just a Machiavellian logic to getting a bunch of terrible things out of the way first. Okay, some more terrible things. Here we go. Uh, Multi-pronged orders on border security and immigration enforcement, including the authorization of the wall, it's building the wall, uh, stripping of federal grant money to sanctuary cities, hiring 5,000 or more border patrol agencies, ending catch and release policies for illegal immigrants, and reinstating local and state immigration enforcement partnerships. And so basically, you know, he's doing everything he said he would vis-a-vis -vis immigration. And then, of course, he's bringing back the Keystone XL pipeline and the Dakota Access pipeline. He is also expediting the environmental uh, permitting processes for infrastructure projects related to those pipelines. Basically just, you know, streamlining and rolling out the whole thing. And not to harp on this too much, but, you know, if if just maybe if Obama hadn't sat on the Keystone XL pipeline thing for like, what, five years? and just killed it right away. It wouldn't have been something that maybe, maybe, just maybe, the company pushing for it might have given up and it wouldn't have been something for Trump to just roll out as easily and almost as quickly as Obama rolled it back. Just a thought, I don't know. I mean, does Obama even wanna stop it really? Right. Because that's the thing is, oh no, it's, no, oh, no, Trump got it again. Like, honestly, I have a real knot in my stomach because when Obama issued the executive order to get um, Chelsea Manning out, um, I was kind of wondering, why isn't this instant? Like, yeah. and I had this like terrible yeah. feeling. It's like, oh man, it's really setting up like, you know, Trump could executive order this around or something. I don't, I don't know what the he's got. Is. Yeah, he's got five months. He would do something. Talk to his people, talk to his lawyers. And see what he can see. Yeah, because that's like 
that would be maybe that's a, a Trump card for him to really get the activists bum, left and bum, stick it. Yeah, right. It's like really stick us where it hurts, right in the powerlessness. Oh God. I wonder because he's definitely going to be going for a, a demoralization strategy with the left, the alt right. They're like sadism specialists when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I mean, I don't know, Bannon, whatever, alt light. I I get the sense that this guy's really like a closet neo-fascist, if not just like a Nazi. That actually, that actually brings up an interesting question, which is, you know, what is Bannon's ideology? Like, he seems to yeah. have like uh, an affinity for Alexander Dugan. Yeah. He's um, a Russian neo-fascist, basically. He calls himself a Eurasianist. But he yeah. basically argues that like, globalization is robbing the world of its traditional cultures and uh, <clears throat> Russia needs to kind of expand itself and become the great empire that it once was. And Bannon is almost like applying this ideology but to American nationalism, it seems. Bannon might be the one person, one influential person in contemporary politics that m might actually qualify as a fascist. I mean, he does describe himself as a Leninist which, you know, that certainly meets mm -hmm. the qualification of mixing left and right uh, in a syncretic way. I think yeah, the was, only, uh, the yeah, only there's functioning a, Leninist. There's a Bordiga quote that uh, fascism does um, steals from the proletariat's most valuable, um, its, its most valuable asset, its um, organization or something like that. I mean, what, what else do you know about this Bannon guy, Because Donald? Because I know you're kind of our resident uh, alt-right botanist or whatever. Um, I think Bannon is, he's not on the same spectrum as someone like Richard Spencer, and I do have a hard time calling him a white nationalist because he hasn't really published anything saying that, you know, white identity trumps all political stuff and whatnot. Like, it's very much like dog whistle white identity type stuff. He's not as open about it, but... From what I understand, he is very conservative Catholic, almost like a Catholic reactionary. And he does have this mystified vision of America. So he definitely is on the far right spectrum of things, I feel. And Breitbart is almost like this propaganda outlet for doing these kind of far right dog whistles. Well, I know he's talked about, like from what I've read, uh, from what little I've read, he seems to be interested in the idea of the really, really into the idea that there's a clash of civilizations between Western Christian civilization and Islam. And he wants to structure, you know, foreign policy around that. And that's why uh, he wants to make an alliance with Russia and so forth. Exactly. He, he basically sees the world as a class of clash of all he basically sees the world as this globalist octopus with its tentacles destroying all the traditional cultures of the world and Islam and the left and globalized capitalism are all like part of this like conspiracy basically to destroy like national traditional cultures. Well, this that's very interesting because when I think of clash of civilizations, I think of the neoconservative version of this where actually capitalism is our civilization that we're seeking to defend from Muslim you yeah. know, secret communists or something. But Bannon has this idea of, of a Judeo-Christian capitalism rather than that's, um, core crow. He calls our modern capitalism crony capitalism. 
but he advocates for a Judeo-Christian form of capitalism. See, that's the real concerning element here is that the, for the first time in a long time, the kind of, well, the more openly anti-Semitic right, because I'm not saying, you know, the pro-Zionist right harbors no anti-Semitic tendencies, but, you know, they certainly don't like to think that way. And the United States takes a lot of pride in its victory over Nazi Germany. And one of the ways that we convince ourselves that we're not as bad as Nazi Germany is, you know, we, we, Hey, look, we love the Jews, you know, even though we didn't like let them in when it was relevant, you know, Hey, we love them now. So, I mean, Seinfeld was the number one show in America for a long time. I mean, how could we hate Jews? I mean, yeah, you know, it, Israel has been very useful to us in foreign policy. How could we hate them? Anyway, the point being is that this is represents a different kind of conservatism. Yeah, Bannon is actually pro-Israel too, which is important to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, those Jews should, you know, go over there. And that's they they form the Judeo part of the Judeo-Christian axis. So, another another one of his orders, um, and this one reeks of Mike Pence. Uh, it's a ban on federal funds to international groups that perform abortions or lobby to legalize or uh, or promote abortion. Uh, it was originally instituted by Reagan, and it's kind of gone in and out uh, as it's dipped between Democratic and Republican administrations. I mean, the obvious fallout from this, of course, is that uh, abortion rates will go up, and so will rates of STDs, because a lot of the groups that perform abortions also deal in sex education and contraceptives and so forth. That's just more of that, you know, uh, you know, conservative Christian freakiness that we uh, typically get from the right, and we probably would have got whether it was Trump or not. Uh, of course, he has another order getting us out of uh, TPP, which towards the end of the campaign, even Clinton was throwing under the bus. He imposed a hiring freeze for some federal government workers. Uh, Military is excluded, of course. And then the last one I have on the list, of course, has to do with uh, an order that directs federal agencies to ease the regulatory burdens of Obamacare. They can waive, defer, or grant exemptions, or delay the implementation of any provision or requirement above of Obamacare that imposes a fiscal burden on any state, or a cost, fee, tax, penalty, or regulatory burden on individuals, families, healthcare providers, health insurers, probably most importantly, patients, uh, recipients of healthcare services, purchasers of health insurance, or makers of medical devices, products, or medications. And of course, that's following the uh, conservative repeal of Obamacare. It's interesting, I mean, at least in comparison to the Republican Congress, how Trump almost looks somewhat moderate because he seems to be suggesting that they actually have to replace it with something. Wow, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot you just went through there. Just Trump. thinking about the abortion stuff by, this, by itself, the uh, potential uh, rolling back of some LGBTQ protections. Some... Trump isn't as much of a free market fundamentalist as a lot of GOP people. But I think that ultimately the GOP free market fundamentalists have enough power already to where it's not going to matter for Trump anyway. I really have some conflicting feelings about this. I know we talked about this last time, but I, ha I really get the sense that Trump is going to do a big pivot away from at least neoliberalism as we understand it. Like, I think he's serious about the tariff stuff. I think... I don't know. A lot of the reinvestment schemes seem neoliberal uh, as they stand, but I don't know. I get the sense that he's going to be playing hardball with these economic, uh, I don't know, with his economic initiatives. Like he's not going to just do the regular thing. Like 
he is going to try to, quote, put America back to work, quote. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, we'll have to see how the political forces play out when they do. But I think if it's going to happen, it's going to have to happen in the first 100 days, I think. Certainly. Mostly. Probably by executive order. Yeah. And it's, yeah, exactly. By executive order, by stacking the court. Uh, it's, in a way, like, the way I thought of it was that Trump is almost like setting up a Bonapartist dictatorship, <laughs> which sounds a lot worse than it. I mean, I'm not trying to freak out, but, like, that's almost what it is what he's well, trying to do it certainly it, isn't the capitalist state functioning it's, as an it's instrument not fascism. Of it's not fascism because fascism is a bottom part of state that rules through terroristic means but it's it's, it's he's still kind of building up a bonapartist state could you could you expand on that a little bit and maybe explain to someone who isn't as familiar with like bonapartism what that means i mean a, a bonapartist state is basically like the idea is that the state tries to um, rule in the favor of all the different classes and kind of unite all the different classes in a common like national project. And it's very militaristic and nationalistic. It has a disdain for democratic rule, but it doesn't completely necessarily do away with all democracy. It can be a very imperialist or... Well, the comparison of Trump to Napoleon III is it's kind of shaky in a way because in a sense Napoleon the third was almost the first modern politician he was the first person who seemed to really grasp the game of playing different classes and forces in society against each other as a way to secure one's power and position he was the first one to almost grasp modern marketing as a means to power like i read that he would walk around with a piece of uh food underneath his hat and like an e-pet eagle nearby that would like hover over him to like make him look more magisterial uh, or he would before he his rise to power he would circulate these coins all throughout paris that just had his picture on it and said him and so in a way like it's the same thing with like fascism too in some ways fascism and all of that has become integrated into the normal functioning of the state. Same thing with Bonapartism. Like that role that the state has to play is something that has really become normalized. But I guess what makes Trump different is how he is almost bringing things back to an earlier. Well, it's weird because the force of the presidency has expanded on its own, independent of Trump. And of course, he's going to push that further as far as it can possibly go. So everything is becoming a lot more personalized. And that's where the dictatorial element comes in. And that's where you see it. And that's what he promised to do when he ran. Like, look at these trade agreements, for instance. He prefers bilateral trade agreements as opposed to these regulated international coalitions of different capitals abiding by a common set of rules and procedures created by this you know, sort of third-party institution that's run and managed by those different nations. What he prefers to do is he's going to do deals. He's going to negotiate himself. That puts him and the executive branch in a much more powerful position than someone who just gets, you know, the American state to abide by these negotiations. He's doing it personally himself, which means so much of American trade policy is going to hinge on his whims. And in that sense, it, it gives him tremendous power in a way that's almost unprecedented. But in another sense, it also imposes a huge burden on his administration because part of the advantage of this 
these integrated free trade organizations globally is that it simplifies uh, and regularizes a very complex process of international commerce. Whereas if he's having to set up all these negotiations and do this uh, Bismarckian style wheeling and horse trading and plate spinning, I really wonder if he or his administration are even functionally capable of managing something like that. Well, I mean, it fits into his image of himself as the businessman. Like he makes the deals. In fact, his, um, you know, his fucking book is named Art of the Deal. I mean, I have it right here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I found it on a garbage can. Exactly. I mean, he's obviously not going to be able to like actually keep those plates spinning and all that jazz, but he's going to try really, really hard because he's just that fucking narcissistic. Yeah. I think there's a question is, is he going to be able to make this kind of wheel and deal semi Bonapartist regime last is probably, yeah, it's going to have, it's not going to work. It's going to end up, you know, if, in ruins, but is he going to try and do it? Maybe. So much of this hinges on the trajectory of the economy. Um, yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Barring some kind of, because one of the things that, because Bush came in under similar auspices, not necessarily to the same degree, but what really legitimized his administration was 9-11 and the terrorist attacks gave him a mandate that he didn't really have previously when you know, a good many people were still openly contesting his election as president. So absent that, he's not going to have the same kind of legitimate, legitimation if the, if the economy continues to go into the toilet. Right. See, that's why Trump is going to try to do something different, if, especially if shit is hitting the fan. Like, there's no way he's just going to sit there and take it. Trump doesn't have that temperament. I don't like to resort to individual analysis, but I think the fact that we've all <laughs> we've all had to make recourse to individual analysis says something very important about how we should be analyzing the state. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, let's not pretend like we're like the economy is actually doing particularly well. Like there has been a recovery, but it's been pretty much a jobless recovery overall. Like when you look at like the actual unemployment statistics, they're deflated by like, like um, the fucking bureau, the jobs bureau, not like counting people who are like, um, who stopped looking for work. There's also people who are like, underemployed essentially and working two job two part-time jobs and all that so yeah the economy isn't actually that well and trump pretty much tapped into that sentiment during his campaign so the economy is already in the shitter let's right let yeah because we have the stock market's kind of recovered but that doesn't matter to trump you know the people that trump was appealing to people that we should be appealing to i mean th that is, what is scary is i've heard this pointed out that unlike sanders where sanders had gotten in and tried keynesianism and it didn't work he doesn't have racism and scapegoating to fall back on in the same way that trump does sanders would have to basically like the left if the left were in power we would have to be willing to scapegoat the capitalist class and sanders yeah. somebody like sanders showed absolutely no willingness to do that other than a rhetorical flourish in terms of like getting out corruption. He didn't promise to uh, 
I don't know, expropriate the property of the owning class or to go after their money flow or to put throw lock them up uh, or to, you know, string them up on lampposts. Well, I mean, Which, yeah, <laughs> he's, a, he's a liberal, so we can't advocate an actual struggle because that would mean him losing his, his position in society. Yeah, and also during the actual primaries, he brought up the idea that open borders was a Koch conspiracy. Like yeah. it was a Koch idea. Koch brothers. So, yeah. but anyways, okay. yeah, I there is a possibility if he got actually got into power that he would turn on immigrants or something like that. Maybe we should segue a little bit. So, I mean, it's clear that you know that right now because we don't really have a lot of agency here. The Trump, so much of what happens with the Trump administration politically, and so much, so much of its fortunes really hinge on the trajectory of the economy, which is true about pretty much any current ruling administration. Although there are some weird outliers, like uh, Shinzo Abe in Japan has been promising to get the economy going, and nothing he's been doing has been working, but somehow he still, you know, has a really strong poll numbers and a grip on power. But in any case, um, because Trump's, you know, is so extreme and his popularity is so precarious. I think like the economy is going to be the big like X factor in terms of what happens. Nonetheless, you know, we have been seeing some elements of resistance. Uh, I think the one that has people most excited was the response to the um, Muslim ban, basically uh, at the airports uh, in New York. Uh, is, is anybody who's more plugged into this want to describe what happened or? Uh, more or less, there were people being detained at the airport because of the executive order there was an attempt to get lawyers into the airport. Um, and there eventually was just a big Twitter critical mass. Um, I don't know much more about it other than I visited the one out here in San Francisco. And I had visited on the second day, not the first day. Um, and yeah, the tactic was successful, um, which when the hell can you say that? There was also an Uber boycott, which coincided with all that because Uber was trying to take advantage of the situation by offering rides and that sort of thing. So basically, yeah, the cab drivers went on strike to like support it, support it. And they were acting as like scabs. So basically a whole bunch of people just deleted the Uber app, which was pretty great overall, pretty nice, you know. So was was I mean, uh, Uber was always crap, but was was Lyft not giving rides though? Um, uh, does Lyft really have a significant following out there? Like I remember, I don't know. I don't I, think, I think so. I think a lot of people have been turning to it apparently because they don't like Uber because well, of events. That's what I've heard. Yeah, but, well, Lyft Lyft yeah. promised to give a bunch of money to the ACLU because well, and they make well they make it sound like you know I'm not, I'm not trying to like promote Uber or anything, but they make it sound like it was a conscious thing on Uber's part. But I'm sure Uber the drivers just had the app on. It was like people wanted to lift, so they went there. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's app. the way the way Uber is so depersonalized makes it really hard for Uber drivers to see themselves as part of a collective working unit or so. I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was it really showed how mass spontaneous resistance can act as a defensive measure against these kind of attacks that Trump is making. Well, especially in a society where we have democratic rights. Well, and I mean, I that really has been proven in a way, but it doesn't leave open the question, what happens when people go home? Well, and there what was afterwards when, and, and how does this affect people's consciousness? It was a matter of like, really like, like, 
Twitter kind of spontaneity, that sort of Occupy type autonomous uh, uprising kind of thing. You know, that still has its role. That And that's honestly, it's a, this was emerging against a Republican president on a more or less anti-fascist basis. And like we were talking about last time, I think, you know, we can't ignore that there is, a, you know, some radical potential that lingers in some of these responses. Oh, I was going to say, I think what this kind of reveals is what role these kind of spontaneous acts of resistance do have to play. You know, not so much as, you know, this, the revolution is going to be this big spontaneous thing, but right. spontaneous acts of direct action still have a role to play in defending the class from attacks by the state and various vigilantes and whatnot. Uh, during, like, there were a few people on Twitter calling for, like, a, like a general strike on, like, in February in some time. Like, I found that to be particularly LARPy, but kind of encouraging, maybe, because it was, like, being shared around a lot. Like, maybe I'm just following the few leftists on Twitter, but, you know, it was kind of encouraging, even if it is sort of cringy in a way, I guess. I don't know. I still, we talked about this last time, too. I still feel really kind of shitty about that. I mean, the fact that they're, like, setting particular, like, if it was just kind of a meme that was being shared around as, like, a general idea, maybe. But the fact that they're putting dates on it is still very, very, very cringy and very... But what if uh, people go through with this, like, in a rel- you know, like in a relatively half-assed way, like a bunch of people actually, like, try to do that faux general strike? I'm not saying that it would be an actual general strike. I'm not saying that it, you know, it lives up to any of the classical general strikes. But even this, like, LARPy bastardized version of a general strike would be politically significant if it gained traction with the oh. anti-fascist crowd. What would that even look like, though? Yeah, because what union would lead the general strike is my question, because... There's no union. No union. It would be a large, coordinated, like, semi-coordinated act of, of, resist, of personal resistance. That's what it would but, be. But who would coordinate it would be the question, then, because the unions... No one. <laughs> See, this is why no this one. idea is, is so yeah, insane but, to me. Right, but, but, because, we, but it has no to start mass de- democratic movement. And it, no, and no. It, and no. Everyone's going to call in sick, Donald. They're just going to call in sick, and it's going to be... It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. We're gonna just eat Cheetos and all that fun yeah. stuff at home. Look, no one's saying it's gonna be enough. Like, I mean, I'm not saying it's gonna be enough. No one here's saying it's gonna be enough. But I, I, you know, it's it's got to be said that in in a in a time when we don't have labor unions, any gesture towards like coordinated labor activity, no matter how half-assed and no matter how misnamed, because it's not a fucking general strike. I know that. You know, it's 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 a welcome development. It's a class I mean, conscious development. A lot of things have been going on that have been generally good for like developing consciousness. Like, I know Bernie Sanders' campaign ha- is not particularly like popular with like actual leftists per se, but I think it did over open up Overton's window a little bit in terms of like mm-hmm. getting like dis like leftist discourse into the mainstream. Just a tad totally. bit. Totally. I mean, I'm I'm 100% with you. Yeah. I, I still want to try and picture what this might look like, because, you know, having it as like a slogan. Because I'm I'm afraid that it's just going to continue as like a slogan, almost like full communism, 
as just something people share and they go, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, uh, I, okay, so let's, let's just try and run a scenario of what this might actually look like if it was really attempted and we were trying to conceive of how it might work if we were serious about it. Okay, well, so everyone calling in sick. That's okay, so everyone, basically everyone, it. Yeah, but everyone calls in sick and they post a picture of themselves on Instagram, giving a thumbs up, like watching, sitting at home watching Netflix. I don't think that's what it have to be. You would have to have like walkouts, like walkouts out of work. So you would have to do workplace organizing. Well, and you would, well, in order to yes, do workplace it, organizing, you would have to have people who were in workplaces well, who were trying to organize talking, their workers talking to each other and going, okay, at my workplace, I got about a 50, 50 people who are down to do it. And 50, 50 nobody people disagrees. With that. Nobody disagrees with that. Nobody, Let's talk about reality right now. <laughs> yeah. You're giving them too much credit. We need to talk about reality though. And I know. I know. I know, no, like, I mean, we need to talk about reality. reality without, well, yeah, like, without a movement that can and that, somehow get workers to go on strike. Calling for a general strike just reveals your weakness. I know. I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it's actually, like, like, a great thing. Maybe it's, like, a sign that people are becoming more conscious, but it's incredibly LARPy, and it's obviously not going to work. Yeah, like, nobody, we, so, we nobody need labor. Going to result, nobody thinks it's going to result in a general strike, but, I mean, like, what about that, like, hardcore labor scenario bears reality in the United States? Like, the well, reality I mean, of the United States is, is the terribly de demobilized. If the general strike meme becomes popular, I can see that maybe helping the labor movement recomposing itself. That's all I'm saying. Like, I, I don't think that this is going to be a successful general strike that will bring capital to its knees. That's not possible right now. I mean, it's not possible at all, in my opinion. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, if you could coordinate such a thing, I think you could do that. But, you know, then what? Like, anyway, mm -hmm. that's that's a yeah. really abstract yeah. thing. I mean, well, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't saying that I wasn't running through that scenario to say that this is impossible. And you know what I mean? Like I wasn't, well, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't just trolling. No, no, no. That. I think you were trying, what no. you were trying to say is that this is what would, what would be required for general strike. Yeah. And well, the I, was also, I, was saying, I was also trying to say that, yeah, yeah, this is, these are the steps that like a real thing, general strike. Yeah. That these things that this thing would have to take. And I mean, I don't necessarily think that's impossible. But we would need to hear these people sharing this general strike meme to be talking about that too, yeah. right? Like it's yeah. not just not just that's saying, not going to happen spontaneously on Twitter. That's that's going to take decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We yeah. Why the, the scenario I just explained wasn't that complicated though? Yeah. I mean, it the because I was just explaining a few basic steps of what people would have to do. You could exp I mean you could explain that to people in a few minutes. Yeah, but to actually get people on the same page to actually have the kind of it like deep in infrastructure and like i don't know just like yeah. a whole institutional like psychic place in american life for there to be that kind of workplace solidarity that's just going to take yeah. a very long time yeah to, to recover yeah that's true also like we need the discipline of a centralized organization to coordinate something like that to be actually yeah. effective same is true of like demonstrations right now like um I know you were probably going to bring it up eventually, but the my, but the like Milo protest at UC Berkeley was oh, kind yeah. of. <sighs> I have mixed feelings about it. I have mixed feelings about it. Like I don't think we should just be punching out random fucking, uh, random fucking college conservatives. But 
you know, m- shutting yeah. down Milo, shutting down Milo when he's threatening the lives of like trans people and undocumented workers is like yeah. incredibly important. Agreed. And I'm just kind of annoyed with a lot of like my online friend group friend group overall like just sort of like dismissing it out of hand like i get that there is sort of a decent reason to like do that like yeah beating up fucking college conservatives looks really bad and it is and we we need to like discipline like dumb black block people who do stupid shit like that but like violent protests can actually be effective sometimes that's the thing. And it was effective. Milo canceled Milo canceled his lecture. Milo canceled his next lecture that he was going to have. I actually, first of all, to preface this, I actually support the rioting at Berkeley because they did what so many people standing in front of these events, picketing and chanting and telling Milo he's a piece of shit actually said they were going to do. They shut it down, right? They actually did what they said they were going to do. So I have tremendous respect for that. Absolutely. So that's number one. But, and I also have tremendous respect for that dude who decked Richard Spencer in spite of what uh, yeah. Zizek or Chomsky might say, uh, saying that. Did Zizek wrong. really, really? I missed that. Zizek yeah, yeah, not, Zizek. Uh, what a punk. Zizek oh. did, but did Chomsky? I saw yeah, somebody, Chomsky somebody, at- yeah, somebody, somebody emailed Chomsky and Chomsky wrote back saying we shouldn't do that. And when you bring it up to force, they win. It could be fake, but I've heard it's real. Oh, that's so bad. Chomsky should know better than that. That made me lose mad yeah. respect for him. Sorry. Yeah. Again, it might, it might, it might, it might be fake. Regardless though, there, there, uh, there is a difference between Richard Spencer. It seems like I mean, I don't, now, I don't actually don't know about this, but because there were things against uh, Gavin McGinnis and Milo, but what, because uh, we know that Richard Spencer is trying to organize, you know, some pretty heinous shit, right? Like he's an actual political figure trying to organize. He's a fascist. Yes. But like, what are Milo and Gavin McGinnis organizing beyond efforts to expand their own personal brands? Um, I, mean, I can, I can go into that. Um, Gavin McGinnis is kind of starting a weird alt-right frat called Proud Boys, where like you have to get a, it's called the Proud Boys. It's really stupid. Yeah. and laughably stupid but it's actually kind of bad because you have to get a tattoo and like do the hazing but you have to like accept that western civilization is superior to all other cultures Uh-oh. and like yeah that he, he says it's about culture not about biological race to get away with the racist part of it but basically what they've been doing is trying to find leftist meetings and trying to find punk shows and then calling in code enforcement and stuff on them even if there's nothing, no reason to, other than the fact they're having an event to try to get the cops to go there and disrupt it. So basically, and they're so, snitches. Yeah, they're, they're basically snitch. trying to like spy on the left and like find ways to snitch on it. Okay. And they're pretty fucking That's bad. Concerning. Like, and uh, Gavin McInnes in general is like a really toxic individual. You, you right. know what? Say what you will about the brown shirts. At least they like beat people up. These people are just tattletales. Like yeah, that's it's kind of yeah. like an attempt to like form a frat version of the brown shirts that just tattles on leftists. Well, yeah, the they're, they're not even and punk shows too. That's another thing they're really into, like trying to stop punk shows because they're like sites of degeneracy and leftist like culture. Oh know. my god! Oh my that's god! You very don't... interesting. Like our conversation like... about how fascists like fascism has been kind of incorporated into the state of regular democracy to a certain extent like 
So you have these people spying on leftists, and instead of going to beat them themselves, they're like, all right, well, the government has a service for this, so let's just call this up. Like, <laughs> we don't need to do this ourselves. The, Trump, it's, like, it's like the decline of violence, but for fascists. Trump, Trump's going to make, like, a website. You just go to, like, you know, Trump, Trump, Trump the liberal fascist.net. <laughs> and you'll just go there or dot gov and you'll just go there and you'll register meetings and Trump will send the, you know, whoever, whatever local agency. Yeah, you is. can have the National Guard go break a local immigrant yeah. business's windows for you. You know Jeez. what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't have to beat up leftists. Daddy Trump will beat up leftists for me. But anyway, about Milo, one, he did um, out um, a trans student at one of his rallies, which led to um, her ending up having to leave the school. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's and, um, pretty close to incitement. Yeah, he definitely was um, hurting the... Yeah. He was definitely endangering someone there. And apparently apparently his whole rally at UC Berkeley, apparently his current campus tour is at four sanctuary campuses. And what he's doing is he's urging students to turn in undocumented um, students. And there's a rumor that he was actually going to give a list of undocumented students at the school during his speech, and oh. which, is, which is very much likely. But regardless of whether or not that's true, he was still trying to incite the Young Republicans Club to a basically yeah. like a, a light program. And so like trying to make this about free speech is, in my opinion, yeah. wrong-headed that's because it's more mistake. about defending yeah. people from the instigators of pogroms and similar types of things. Yeah, even the great yeah. like liberal theorists of free speech, they always made an exception for incitement. The fact that free speech has been ceded to the right wing to to fascists, you know, even by I mean, this is, you know, consistent with the way that people interpret the First Amendment in the United States is a very reactionary interpretation. But well, yeah, and, and it doesn't have to be we reject free speech because we don't want Milo inciting the violence. Well, and that's the, that's the crazy thing, too, is, you know, Trump literally, I think, tweeted that he was considering pulling Berkeley's funding for not letting Milo speak. Hmm. Wow. So there's actually kind of a alliance there between Milo and Trump then, because I always thought of Milo as just kind of this celebrity comedian, well, like conservative uh, fanboy of Trump. But I didn't actually know well, that if he and Trump had a relationship. I don't think that's an indication of Trump and him having a relationship. I think Trump just understands that Milo, Milo and like the rest of Breitbart is like, like a part of like why he's there in the first place. Like yeah. without Breitbart and Milo, there wouldn't really be much of a Trump, Trump administration without like him yeah. and the rest of the right wing elements of the media and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Specifically, when Richard Spencer talks about what he calls the alt-light, like people that aren't fashy enough for Richard Spencer, but are kind of inspired by him, two people that he mentions by name are Milo and Steve Bannon. So it's, you know, there's there's a, there's a some kind of connection here, not to, you know, whip out the chalkboard and start circling things, but yeah. you know, it's pretty... pretty my, my The thing is, the actual alt-right... The Richard Spencer, Greg Johnson, Millennial Woes, 
um, Red Ice Radio, like alt right. They all hate. They all hate Milo. Like yeah, you, they you all, see it on the all... Daily Stormer. They constantly yeah, the whine about him right, being. They, yeah, they constantly write about him being a degenerate Jew homosexual, and yeah, how he's trying to he's, he's trying to co-opt the movement. But the thing is, like a lot of like young suburban kids who hate feminism come across his videos talking shit about feminism on YouTube, and then from there on they just go more and more down the rabbit hole and start believing in like cultural marxist conspiracies and yeah. all kinds of silly stuff if anything confirms the thesis of uh, wilhelm reich that fascism on some levels is psychosexual pathology it's the alt right basically like the alt right is has deeply ingrained to, into the ideology of the alt right is like this sort of sexual impotence a lot of these people are coming out of like sites like Wizard Chan and like 4chan and that sort of thing, and they're like incel, these incel weirdos. But how did these people, how did these people, like, okay, so like what role did these people actually have in I know, getting Trump elected? Because just because Trump made like a vague allusion to free speech on Berkeley, and it was obviously it was directed at Milo, but one, I mean, amongst normies and amongst, you know, right wing people, there is this concern about universities corrupting their kids and making them gay and have them turn away from Christianity and so forth, so on and so forth, right? So, you know, he, it's very easy for him to go after like a liberal university, especially like Berkeley, uh, for, you know, not letting somebody speak there and being against free speech. But yeah. at the same time, Trump also did an, during his campaign, he did an interview with Alex Jones. And now InfoWars has a place at the at at, at the White House. They actually have a correspondent who's no there way. for the uh, press serious? conferences. Yeah, yeah, that's happening. He has a press. Oh InfoWars has like a press pass. <laughs> yeah, InfoWars has a press pass. This is happening. This is happening. Yeah, so, I mean... InfoWars is officially state-sanctioned media. So, yeah. This is how far Thank we have you, gone. Jefferson. So you see him, you see him throw these kind of bones to people who are a part of his base. But I really question like how instrumental the alt right really was on in electing Trump. Like they've convinced themselves yes. they're almost like a hundred percent responsible for yeah. because they're of not. meme magic they're and not. stuff. But that's buying yeah. into their myth. If they are a small portion of Trump's electorate, it's the other way around. Trump winning is what has given them relevance. It's not well, I, I, Trump relevance. It's all the relevance they have is just because of Trump. Yeah, like on the media end, they are somewhat relevant, but I don't think they like reached out to the normies and like the average Trump voter is not like some alt right weirdo. At best, they may be like college conservatives or whatever. Like there might be like a few college conservatives who are actually like have some knowledge of the alt right. Yeah, the average alt-righter is like a Breitbart tier conservative. Like, you know, Breitbart is not really alt-right. Daily Stormer yeah. is alt-right. Yeah, Breitbart yeah. is, you know. Yeah. Breitbart yeah. has been around for a while and has cool. been popular with conservatives for a while. Trump and yeah. the alt-right are kind of manifestations of a deeper ideological material kind of struggle to justify our society's existence in a way that's halfway consistent with the myths that we're raised with. So like when we're talking about anti-feminism, we can say, well, democracy in the market, 
has taken care of all the problems with 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 women that there's really no really no gender inequality really and that anyone that says otherwise well i mean uh, they're just not taking into account the natural <laughs> difference yeah. between men and women it just you know that just flows from trying to defend things the way they are and so you have you have a need that's there an ideological need that people can fill perceptive people can fill yeah and that's what's going on yeah it's definitely like a reification basically of um what a natural order is supposed to be in a way yeah and understanding it that understanding things in such a way that it enables you to do politically what you want to do and that comes first what yeah what you know how the world is the description of the world comes second to what you want to do but back to the back to the milo question do we think that the, the, the stakes have changed because milo has kind of become more extreme or that up until kind of recently like protesting milo was a waste of time i mean yeah I, that's kind of how i feel i mean i think that just to a certain, I think honestly, because the whole idea of anti-fascism is, you know, you nip it in the bud and you, you know, you beat them up and provide, prevent them from having a platform. Honest, oddly enough, like what they did at Berkeley, where they literally had a riot and broke a bunch of windows and burned some shit and literally made it unsafe for him to speak there was what they should have been doing earlier. Because earlier, Milo was basically kind of acting more as like a media personality. And his whole thing was, you get a bunch of hysterical liberals to go out and protest you and that gives you free publicity and then it creates this cycle where they almost by you know pushing you down but not completely getting rid of you they kind of build you up in a way and i always yeah. felt like for a while like the protests especially when it was just like picketing and bullhorning was kind of feeding into his whole thing and basically doing doing almost free work for for his media his self-built like petty bourgeois personality-based media company we should be taking notes yeah, and basically all the dumb YouTube videos of Milo owning dumb protesters and all that was because they were trying to like debate him and confront him like right. in like a typical liberal fashion. Right. And it, was it just, just like fed into him. Well, and that's and they it, basically he found a weakness. Sorry. He found a weakness in the in the discourse of the left. Like even after this event, he was saying like the left forgot how to debate. In a sense, they have because right. so much of the activism, especially on these campuses, is like hysterical moral appeals to, you know, re respecting people's autonomy and respecting this, respecting that, and, you know, not avoiding slights, which makes people very easy to troll. And because they don't have a deeper material critique or a deeper social critique on like bigger levels, it would be, it's hard for them to, to debate him because it's just hysterical moralizing in a lot of ways. Um, they don't, and some of that's just because they're college students and they're still learning about this. They don't totally maybe have the language to articulate uh, things to the extent that, you know, you would need to. I, I mean, like, I'm not a priori opposed to debating Milo, but you would just have to get somebody who could beat him, which honestly wouldn't be that hard because he doesn't really have ideas. We should have just ignored Milo. Let's be honest here. We should have just ignored him when he was just a dumb shock jockey type. If we gave him like too much attention even debating him would have been too much like if you're going to debate someone from the alt-right at least get like an honest into a somewhat honest intellectual from the alt-right like well and he would, have never, much... he, would have, he would have never debated somebody who could actually beat him either like he would always yeah, try to find the like thing. the most like stereotypical person and then 
you know, it was, it was a straw man. Thing. Like it was the same thing. It, it's and it's not that different from typical like rightist pundit mo's, right? Like that was Will Riley's whole thing. Like he would bring some liberal straw man on his show, and the minute he started to kind of halfway lose an argument, he would cut the guy's mic off and he would yell at him for three minutes, and then they'd cut to commercial. You know, uh, that was like that was the TV format. But Milo is like that of the internet age, where it's more of a it's almost more petty bourgeois because like previous previous rightist intellectuals were like appendages to like these giant media conglomerates and they were almost like uh i guess you could say i'm trying to think of the quite the term but they market themselves to these media conglomerates that fit into that format whereas milo is somebody who works in the internet it's much more you know, sort of self-created media and you know like 20 years ago if he'd been doing this he'd be on like the radio doing like calf zoo crew stuff which is how glenn beck got his start this guy has to create like YouTube videos and a bunch of media content online. And then his personal things, his appearances in life feed into this media stuff. Um, and so that, that's just his whole, it's, it's kind of typical rightish shtick, but you know, because everything's escalated so much, it takes like this really uh, bizarre and uh, in a way more dangerous turn. Yeah, pretty much. Does anyone else have any opinions on the, um, uh, on Milo? Like on, I, I was, not just on Milo, but on the whole, um, Berkeley uprising. Well, I mean, in general, it was kind of an uprising almost. Yeah, because they they didn't rely necessarily on the bureaucracy of the administration to work for them, but they kind of forced the school to which is, speak. Which, which is good because I thought that that was a, a mistake, you know, to to do like expect some like legalistic constitutional protections to like stand in the way for you. That was always a mistake. I support. The idea that they, you know, and the reality that they shut this down physically, like on on purpose, you know, in a very directed and unmediated way. Um, but it also kind of some some of the propaganda of the deed on the periphery of the protest, I think, start to start to get a little concerning. Um, yeah. Yes, I'm, I was going to talk about that actually. Yeah, and so it kind of brings to mind, you know, maybe three levels uh maybe like a, in a sort of systemic way like there's um there's some actions that we're absolutely for like you know shutting down you know someone who's inciting or you know punching richard spencer in the fucking face like i think you know if we're communists we really have to unqualifiedly before that in like a sense like um secondly there, there are some there are some like you know like there's some property destruction that might be counterproductive in the in a sort of you know optics kind of media sense but that is kind of like morally on the right side and that we don't really have any business condemning um and then there's stuff like you know spraying a girl in a bitcoin hat uh with pepper pepper spray in the face yeah like yeah. that that's really not that's not defensible whereas yeah. i mean i am going to say that when you have, you know, mob politics, it's going to get ugly on both the yeah. left and the right, no matter what. But um, uh, I have a worry that there's a lot of liberals and anarchists today who are just really pissed off about Trump and want a revolution as soon as possible. And so they're willing to kind of engage in adventuristic and dangerous activities to make that the case. Yeah, that, that Trump isn't the president. And I see this with kind of the Red Guards collectives that are popping up, like, who are already, like, talking about protracted people's war. I have to just, I'm worried that 
um, a lot of like cult-like figures are going to be able to get followings of people who are really alienated and pissed who want to do something and get them to the, do really adventuristic terrorist acts that will give the state the impetus to basically ban all legal socialist organizing, which would well, be extremely fucking bad. And half the people doing that would be cops anyway. Exactly. The cops yeah. would be instigating these like Maoist types who want, you know, protracted people's war. But yeah. even without the cops, I think the left will fuck itself over because Absolutely. of its own bad ideas. And part of our job is like arguing against these bad ideas and trying to point to a better alternative. Yeah. Well, we, we need a hegemonic kind of socialist political presence. There's no alternative to that. Like, otherwise, you know, it's just one sect's word against another and, you know, your aunt's word against your, you know, ex-girlfriend or, you know, like whatever. It's just people arguing and there's there's no like, you know, socialist, you know, kind of like political authority. I mean, I don't know. Like, of course, that could be used against us, but uh, there's no way to have like disciplined, forceful resistance that doesn't descend into just just regular ass mob violence without... I mean, the problem is the closest thing we have to that right now is bernie sanders and he's still sheepdogging for the dems so yeah well, yeah well we have to like learn our lessons from bernie sanders and like figure out what he was doing right and like kind of i, I don't know it's it's that's actually a really hard question how do you how do you work with what the sanders campaign left us one thing i wonder is if milo and gavin still got paid <clears throat> What a great question. Probably dead. Because, yeah, I mean, they, they still get paid with the, for their events even though they got shut down. Because, you know, we can keep shutting down their events, but they're still, still collecting checks for it anyway. Yeah. And Milo wow. probably yeah. took a shitload of money from, like, the privilege grant that he set up. Oh, like, he yeah. Probably he probably took a shitload of money. Okay. Yeah. He, he put he put the money in his personal bank account. I don't even know how he got it to actually like work because he put like the money in his personal bank account initially. Like, well, I su- I support him like stealing money from like his gross audience. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, I I I remember when Milo came to my school and like it was um there was a big face off between the Milo supporters and the protesters. Wasn't that organized by Stalinists? Yeah, there was Frizzo, Freedom Road Socialist Organization, the Rape Cult. Oh, they were organized. They were leading the organization against Milo. Yeah, of course and they were. Of this random mob of like kids was um with MAGA hats were like leading the opposition <laughs> to them, and like. I wish they I wish I'd gone to that actually. In honestly, like I, I honestly was like a pox on both houses because both sides were with no heroes. Yeah, we... there were no heroes in this event. It was like <laughs> no one here is saying smart things. Like this is what politics is degenerating into. We should have we should have just brought lawn chairs and popcorn yeah. and like just sat up and like like the people who used to watch like civil war battles and like they would. Like get like picnic blankets and shit and stand like two miles away. Yeah, we should have done that yeah. with that. It would have been great. It's it's hentai Hitler versus fucking dumb Maoists and fucking <laughs> Stalinist types in fucking full uniform. So that's it for this week. Next week we're going to be discussing the first half of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, now we have an email account, so if you want to get in touch with us, you can shoot us an email at swampsidechats at gmail.com. 
Uh, we're also going to be putting this podcast on iTunes starting with this episode. And I figure that if you're still listening to this at this point, uh, I'm assuming you like this. So maybe consider leaving us a review. Uh, until next time, uh, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Go fuck yourself. <laughs>